Yo, yo, yo. It's uh, Mike Sauter and my compadre, my goomba, Michael Martin again for this week's Regeneration podcast. Uh, we're joined again with our good friend, Tariq, and uh, quite often when I see the, the mug of my friend, Michael, I think of asking him about how things are going on his farm. But uh, this week there was a news item, and I, uh, I'll assure people we have not talked about this, but it's something that drove me kind of nuts. It was this stinking images, image or images from the James Webb telescope. Um, did you guys see those? Yes. I did. What's your reaction to them? They drive me nuts and I can try to explain, but I don't know if I'm right, but I have a viscerally negative reaction. I'm kind of, well, I saw a really funny meme that showed that those clear images from outer space and showed a security camera. It's all fuzzy. You can't see what the guy looks like. <laughs> well, can, they can do that, huh? No. No. So. Tara? It feels a little audacious yeah <laughs> same say more when i when you see that people have added colors and um touch touch them up around the edges that makes me feel frustrated like i would that like is. to see it's like TikTok. <laughs> i would like to see it as, as unadulterated as possible i agree i think that that hit it on the head i was thinking because you were joining us tara and we have a different subject folks that we'll jump into but it was uh Front Porch Republic, we've referenced that a number of times on the show. And they had a nice short little article by an author, Casey Spinks, who um, was referencing, you know, he'd rather see the stars without light pollution than have to receive these images. Exactly. But uh, though I, I've, I write for Front Porch a lot, I've probably commented on four articles ever, but I commented on Casey's because it was, it was the thing you were getting at, Tara, that... Um, this notion, A, this notion I feel like we're all being kind of channeled into some type of spectacle that's supposed to bring us all together, but they're, they're highly adulterated, right? The infrared and the ultraviolet, we can't see with our eyes. All the images, it seems to me, it's just data collected as numbers turned into an image and they apply colors to them. Um, you know, it, and they're so adulterated, you know, um, and I just, I, and it's nothing the human eye would ever see if it was out there. And they, they say, we think this is what the human eye would see if you're out there. And all that language ever since I was a kid just drives me nuts. Well, it feels very, you know, we're supposed to be in an anti-colonialism age, but it feels very Western colonialism in terms of how it disregards indigenous knowledge of the stars. I don't know if you're familiar with the Dogen people in Nigeria. No. But they, um, they told anthropologists in the 1920s that Sirius A had a twin star, Sirius B, and they traced out all the, the map of it. And they said, not only that, there's also a Sirius C. And anthropo anthropologists were like, well, they, Sirius C doesn't exist. <laughs> they just made that up. Uh -huh. And Sirius B, they must have read a newspaper because we only just discovered it. And we've recently discovered there probably is a serious C in that system. So all those ancient ways of looking at the stars are completely disregarded. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah, yoga yeah. people are presenting an incredible mystery to astrosophical knowledge. Yeah. And yet we're just like, oh, we don't want to know about it. We just want to take our fancy pictures, which like you said, are just made out of numbers. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I know, I think I know some of the ones at the microscopic level are definitely made out of numbers. I could be wrong, but I know it's like 12.5 hours. There's all these different images that they kind of collate and then they thwap some colors on them, you know, and again, colors outside of our visible range. And we're, we're, I think we're kind of stumped or, you know, we're amused to death in some way by them, you know, then the president when the world's kind of in a, in a piecemeal, to quote Pope Francis, like moving piecemeal into World War III, President Biden gets to deliver these images and we all kind of congratulate ourselves on something called science. And I, I think, you know, I've done a lot, like if you, if you go out to the end of the universe or down to the smallest Planck length, it doesn't really matter for me. We tend to favor one more than the other, but the, um, I always think, go down, go, get smaller. Cause at least when you're blowing up rockets, you're not you know, like spending all this, jet fuel and polluting the rivers around Cape Canaveral and things like that. Uh, and I, again, I don't know, women would also see this as just some wild male thing. I yeah. Think. I, don't even get me talking about uh, what's his name? Jeff Bezos rocket ship <laughs> yeah. and, and Sigmund Freud. Yeah. <laughs> I could do a whole thing right here. Well, Talk yeah, about, that's, that, yeah, that's, 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 a, you know, that's a dude thing, right? And it's a dude thing. We're conquering. I'm going to go conquer some stuff. Yeah. Really. But, but you know, there's another star there, right? No, no, no. You don't have science. <laughs> you know what I mean? Does it have to be a dude thing? Like though all those ancient stone circles, which seem to have some embedded memory of the stars. Is no, it a it's a dude thing to... To, to colonialism, right? <laughs> to colonize. Not <laughs> it. That's the big part. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's use let's use uh, science and tech and colonialism, and things like that to uh, kind of segue to our topic du jour. And it's one of the reasons we welcome back our friend, a very good friend, uh, polymath and and wonderful conversationalist uh, Tara Theek. Um, how are you today, Tara? I'm doing wonderful. You know, I, I get a few hours each day in the early morning to do my researches before I get into life. And it's a wonderful parallel every day that that rhythm of here's my intellectual abstract activity. And now here's <laughs> raising the kids. And it's great. I think we're going to bring them together. And we talked for maybe 20 seconds before we started this podcast. But the um, let me say podcast in case we haven't made it clear. Anybody who's listening to us on a podcast know that we're also on YouTube. Uh, at the Regeneration channel. And the same thing, if you're first seeing us on YouTube, let us make it explicit that you can also find us if you're traveling in your car on a podcast, Spotify, um, all the other ones, but go to Podbean to the Regeneration podcast. But today we're here and we've invited Tara back with us, a mother of three children? Four. Four, that's right. I knew that. So sorry. Because uh, one's so new. And uh, the, in the 20 seconds we were talking before going live, she had mentioned something like nature school. So we're going we're gonna to weave that in. But today's subject is education. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Michael and I were talking about Rudolf Steiner. It's somebody we've all read. And he's just one kind of feeding stream, a very important one, into how we might talk today about education. I would say education coming out in the age of, uh, in the wake of COVID, uh, one quote from, you know, somebody I'll bring in today, but because we were talking about science and tech, uh, Ivan Illich, one of the phrases he used to describe the modern educational enterprise was the use of science and tech to separate people into classes of masters and slaves, right? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and so, um, you know, Tara, maybe, you know, kind of beginning with you, it, this is a this one of the smallest things you've written on, but 
it was a tweet, I think before you went off Twitter for a while, and I'm so glad you're back. But again, that's a, I, I don't mean that in any way other than you doing you and what's right for you. But you were just, at one point, you would conjecture it in a tweet. And I don't know if you even remember it, but like all these different pods that started during COVID, there, there was probably a lot of interesting ideas. If we could, if we could get people uh, to, to talk about maybe what they learned, we know, we know that um, during COVID, you know, these stories, well, one I was just reading, it was, I think an author interviewed in the Economist magazine. I found him uh, in, a, in an educational journal called the 74 Thomas Kane. He's a Harvard economist. And you say, why economists? Well, sometimes they run the best, you know, data analysis of things, but he was just conjecturing what it would possibly take play, what it would take uh, even in the schools as they are to, to catch up remedially for what people lost during the lockdowns um, and the school closures. You know, maybe by the end of 2023, um, I, I think the whole next year after next year, if there was almost like full year summer school, which none of us want here and everything, you know, but just what that did. But let's let Tara, like, give us some leading thoughts, some kind of uh, coming out of the age of COVID and having four small kids and uh, where you're thinking on this subject right now, get us started. Well, I feel very lucky because I think I've been proactive on issues of there being major problems in mainstream education that most aren't looking at. So that's given me an ability to sort of make choices for my kids and supplement things with them that um, sort of make up the gap. But for other kids, like what you just what you just said, I don't think it's the we have two crises here. We have COVID and we have the crisis of what the education system is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And people want to boil that down to politics and critical race theory. And you know, to some extent, I agree with them. But there's a larger crisis in that the the educational system as a whole is just so abstracted away from daily life, from not teaching kids how to balance a checkbook to not teaching, you know, kids in New York City how to garden. There are so many problems. And it couldn't, to try to put that on a paper and say, we could catch up by 2023. You, what does it mean to catch up right now? We're not, <laughs> yeah. we're not asking the right questions. No, no. We have a field of administrators who are leading our questions. And I think the only way progress comes is sort of the way it is coming through the critical race theory pushback, though I, I want that to extend like outward beyond critical race theory. Where is the food in our kids' area <coughs> coming from? What are, why are our kids in these mega classrooms? Why do we have middle school students segregated into these small little arenas where they can just feed upon each other's energy? Like there's some big questions that need to be asked and we're not collectively asking them yet. Awesome. Michael. I just want to burn the whole thing down. <laughs> well, I've I taught, don't think that's a crazy, I don't think that's a crazy starting point. Well, you know, I mean, there's a, so many things. I have taught everything from kindergarten through elementary school, high school, college, and graduate school. So I taught the whole thing. And and I've been at it for 30 years, basically. Um, and I, we've homeschooled our own kids. 
And so I see by my, you know, it's almost a laissez-faire kind of uh, approach to teaching. It's, it's more uh, labor intensive for my wife who does mo most of the homeschooling when the kids are in through, through seventh or eighth grade. But by seventh and eighth grade, they start to become very independent and they can do a lot of things on their own. High school, I don't think she does anything with them. <laughs> they basically teach themselves. And, uh, you, know, we, you know, we provide a curriculum. I always tell people that my wife the, runs, the, runs the homeschool, but I'm the principal because <laughs> I designed the curriculum, <laughs> you know, uh, for the, at least for the elementary school, which is ba basically based on a Waldorf curriculum. Um, but I think it all comes down to, and, and, and we see this right now with what's going on with not just critical race theory, but the bizarre phenomenon of a, of a drag queen story hour and all that kind of sexual grooming that's going on as well, which, which the good thing about COVID is a lot of parents found out, found out what was going on. At yeah, school. I was say you know what I mean? Yeah. They're like, hold it. But I think the problem is, and this is what, what, what I really admire Rudolf Steiner about with who, who, uh, you know, started Waldorf education or came up with the curriculum was, is that there's really no anthropology. There's no understanding of what a human being is. And if you don't have that to start from, it's going to be chaos. It's just going to be, it's going to be madness. It's chaos is, is putting it too, too, too mildly. It'll just be insane, which is what it is. Um, so, in fact, there was a time when I was at Mary Grove College prior to their closing in 2017. Um, for a while there, I was the curriculum director for what was called the Institute for Arts Infused Education, because they hired, there was a, one of our art professors was, was kind of steering it, but she knew I was a Waldorf teacher who knew how to actually do arts and education, so she tagged me to help her do this. Um, I remember the first meeting we had, I said, well, what's, what's your philosophy of what we're doing here? And she, she looked at me kind of stunned. I said, we're just going to put arts and everything. I said, no, no, that, that's not a philosophy. <laughs> you know, what, what do, you, do you have anything about what's age appropriate or what child development is or anything like this? Or, and they didn't really. Yeah. And, but if you don't have an, and I think, I was looking for it. I couldn't find it. I think Jacques Maritain wrote a book on the crisis in education. I think this is in the 1940s or early 50s, which is really brilliant. And he, I mean, now talk about it. We're, we're talking about the crisis in education right now. They were talking about it in the 40s and 50s. Steiner was taught, that's why Steiner was asked to devise Waldorf education because they, they, they said, obviously, you know uh, what we what we've been offering in the West for for education didn't produce real human beings who would not partake in World War One. Right, right. That couldn't have happened in a civilized society, right? But it did, um, and and that's why Steiner turned it up. His his starting point is anthropology: is what is a human being? What is an incarnating human being? What is a child? What are the stages of childhood? You know, how do we mark them, right? They're not, and I think, and I've been around education for so long to, and to know that 
nobody has a damn clue in higher education in 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 I hate to, it, the big the big the the big joke is that in higher education it's the people who have educa education doctorates who are thought of as the biggest idiots on campus nobody takes them seriously well, the phd's don't take them seriously at all they seem to come in with a scheme of what they've learned in a in a classroom about the values they're supposed to impose, but there's no sense of the, the preacher. No. Mm -hmm. They see, I, you know, when I think about this, I hate to harp on this word, but the word equality seems to have slowly unfurled the idea that people are numbers. And yeah, it's a you, flattening. Yeah. You say, like, oh, well, maybe the age of the teeth signifies something. And people are like, what? I'm not comfortable with that idea yeah, yeah. that losing your teeth and the dream world could have any effect in the classroom. And, and you'd have to know a kid to say, this kid lost their teeth now, and this kid hasn't lost their teeth. This kid can skip and is ready to write. Mm -hmm. This kid can't skip. Those are value judgments yeah. that they don't want to make. They want to kind of keep things equal in terms of numbers and look at the kids in the classroom as development says that all six-year-olds should be able to write, you know? <laughs> As Swabat, student will be able to, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh yeah, it's horrible. I hate it. Um, the, uh, the, the, the notion here between, you know, that, you know, Michael, you or Tara was talking about like expansive to begin with, you know, that I've in my life, you know, Illich would say that, you know, school, school districts are, you know, learning, under the regime of scarcity, as if learning was a scarce thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be on this podcast another time, but this guy who wrote this book, Ishmael, which was kind of a coming of age story some years ago, Daniel Quinn. I, he, I, I never saw it, let's say it this way, but he said like early education, if you think of kindergarten, when they're teaching you things like up and down, in and out, it's, uh, it's using the medium of schooling you know, separation into grades, fluorescent lights above you, classes of way too many kids. The only thing we know about the teacher is that they've been in this crazy atmosphere longer than the kids. They may <laughs> be smart, they may not, but using the whole atmosphere and they're teaching you things like up and down, in and out. And I don't know if he used this language, but he was saying, he was implying that these are things, even if you were locked in a black box, you would have to learn on your own, but they're drilling down the medium that they're convincing you, you learn it by being in school, right? Mm -hmm. And so the medium is the message there. So you have you have this notion of uh, you know a pyramidal structure, grades based on alchemy, that are supposed to spew out people, and so only the winners come out. So it's not really all well, you know for all. And then you have you know which I've been tempted to because I've got these kind of anarchistic impulses. But like Mike said, Michael said, you know that at the later grades you don't have to do much at all. You know, but you know I think we all try to give some shepherding. We don't see our own children as empty vessels that we have to pour in content. But, you know, we know our kids. We know our kids. We might see early on that, like, why are they getting frustrated when with this subject, math, when they're not learning it this way? When, for example, they love everything having to do with trains or band-aids or something. And that would just be a great content for them to pick up these easy things, you know. But so we have we have the unschooling types. And then we have this kind of like hyper-focused, weird medium um but uh you know and so COVID at least it gave a lot of people at least a chance to see around the corners a little bit to see to see you know uh behind the curtains 
Yeah, and I think, you know, um, it's interesting, like we talked a couple of weeks ago, um, Rudolf Steiner, when he devised uh, Waldorf education, he wasn't trying to to burn the whole thing down and start over. He was trying to um, upgrade the, the structure that was already there. And he, and he, did, he added some things that were uh, very innovative, like staying with the same teacher for eight years and the way he used, you know, the arts are employed, but, and of course his, his anthropology, but it's interesting. I looked at, um, gosh, it's maybe 20 years ago now the relics of St. Therese of Lisieux were, were coming into town where I lived. We lived actually um, two miles away from the, the shrine of the little flower in, mm. in Michigan, which is a beautiful church. It's got a horrible history, but it's a beautiful church. Um, and I really wanted to go see St. Saint, Saint Therese's relics before I had to go teach. It was a Waldorf teacher then. And no kidding. So I'm sleeping and I, if I, and I was not good at getting up early in those days, you know, I had little kids in the house. I was just not good. At it. I was, I was teaching in the evening too. Um, and if I wanted to see her relics, I would have had to get up at four o'clock in the morning. And I was like, okay, I'll set the alarm, but I know I'm not going to get up without no kidding. I had a dream that St. Therese was there. And she said, she said, wake up in French. And I woke up. And I looked at the clock and I had time. So I got, got in my car and I was like, even a mile away from the church, the, every parking spot was filled. And I said, I'll never get in. I turned the corner. There's a spot right in front of the church. And so I get out and I go in the church. And just as I go in, they're bringing her relics right in front of me. And then, then a few years later, my kids and I, we went to, went to mass there. And in and, and the, and the narthex, they had like a little museum kind of thing with the history of the church and they had a photograph of that and one of the kids goes hey dad you're in this picture <laughs> but the point i'm trying to make is at that at that uh at that thing they had uh like a kind of a holy card but it was a fo folded out about saint therese and one of the things in it was in uh, a picture that saint therese had drawn in, when she was a schoolgirl of the United States when in her geography class. And it looked like a page that could have come out of a Waldorf book. So we look at, at what, what Steiner was doing in the 1920s. And to us, it seems, you know, crazy. It's like, you know, but to his time, it wasn't that, that much different from what was going on. What do you mean by that? That you, she drew a map that looked like it could come out of a Waldorf book. It was very colorful, done in colored yeah. pencils. Yeah. You know, it yeah. almost the same kind of aesthetic that you see in a in a yeah. Waldorf main lesson sure. book, which was was extraordinary. You know, I was like, and I told my wife, check it out. It's like it's like the stuff I teach my kids in school. Interesting. Um, so he wasn't trying to do anything that, I mean, he was trying to do something to fix what was there, but he wasn't trying to start from scratch. Mm -hmm. And I, as I said in our, our discussion of him a couple of weeks ago, I have to think that if, if he were, if we were to come to him and say, Dr. Steiner, look at the world, what, what can we do for the children? I'm sure he would come up with something very different right now. Yeah, you've said that. Interesting. You know, and that's why when I wrote uh, Transfiguration, I, I proposed the idea of a hedge school, which is, you know, the, the idea of a hedge school is 
comes from Ireland uh, under British rule. And the Irish farmers and commoners did not want their kids learning British history, you know, and having the, lo losing the Irish language. So they would hire what they call hedge, hedgerow teachers. They didn't he teach in actual hedgerows. They taught in barns, but it was kind of clandestine and underground, right? And they would teach them all kinds of things. And, and not only would they teach them the three R's, but they, they might teach them depending on, on where they lived, navigation, or there, there's an ex a story I read in some account of it that um, the, I guess the school inspectors found out and they were checking it out. And they were saying, well, what do they learn here? Because they learn Latin and Greek. Oh, they don't learn Latin and Greek. This boy whips out his, his uh, Greek New Testament and starts reading it off fluently. And, and, the, and the, the inspector's like, oh, well, not bad, I guess. Well, isn't that, isn't that the insight of Apollo Freire and Ivan Illich's early work too, that you know, going to South America or wherever, you could teach reading in say two weeks when people wanted the skills, like if a vote was coming up or if it involved their own uh, economic ventures, you know, when it was desirable, these things that we, we just put kids in front of words for so many, for so many years, you know, well, that's so inefficient. Yeah. yeah. It's just, yeah, it's just putting kids on ice till mom and dad get off work. <laughs> Michael, I was wondering when you, that part about the hedge school in Transfiguration, I love that. I remember sitting right here, it was snowing and I was just like, oh, this is great. I was, I was so happy. I was jumping out of my seat. Um, and I'm doing a podcast with uh, the Doomer Optimism people. I don't know if you're familiar with their circle on Twitter, um, but they're, they're asking questions about how do we school in community? How do we do these things? How do we rebuild sort of a, a parallel pulley and if you were talking about a hedge school now <laughs> like what do we is it coding like is it you know is it planting what there are so many things that like you say we're we're teaching kids in school to waste time trying to learn when they're learn letters when they're five when maybe they should be putting their hands in the dirt i think that's what i think one of the the great things that Steiner made sure was part of the education were the practical arts, right? So kids can learn how to do actual things. Um, and it surprises me how many of my college students don't know how to do so many things. Some of them do, but, but most of them don't know how to do it. You know, they've been tracked already. By the time they get, get to third grade, they, they're, you'll be the artistic person. We're in a Waldorf school, everybody plays music, everybody knits, everybody sews, everybody does woodworking, right? right? Everybody does gardening. It's not special, it's not electives, everybody does it. Um, and the re what happens though, and this is why Steiner did that, is because one of the things he said, you know, it's a, it's a moral failure if, if an adult doesn't know how to sew a button, right? And but one of the, the reason he did that is because when, and you can see this I have seen it many many times. Um, be, you you give kids all and I used to call it multiple avenues of access, you know. So they have all these different ways to get into um, whatever it happens to be, whether it's they have an artistic way in, but you don't just give them that way. You give them all the ways in. And they might be stronger in one than another, but their strength in say it's artistic. Say you're teaching a, a history 
And so they get really get into drawing, uh, copying like a, a fresco of Michelangelo into their main lesson book. And because they, 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 get, they get a handle on that, they're more interested in the story. They're more into, interested in the, in the reading and the writing, right? And it can, in the science and on all kinds of, it, it snowballs. And then what happens is when you go through a, a process like that, and it's not just in Waldorf education, uh, it, but it should be in it, but, and this is what I think um, a homeschooling curriculum can, can, can offer with all those practical things. What happens is you end up with a human being who's not afraid of the world. You've because, said that before, because that they, so important, so important. Because they have, they have, conf, they have familiarity, which breeds confidence in all these different domains. And I had a boy, um, so I took this one class, sixth through eighth grade. They had kind of a teacher who was not cutting it and she left and they asked me to go in and they were kind of, you know, damaged by the time I got them. And I was pretty, I'm pretty laid back and funny. So they loosened up right away. And this one boy could barely read at the beginning of sixth grade, you know, where had he been in, um, mainstream education they would attract him to the dummy classes long since but he just wasn't interested but in sixth grade he could barely read at the beginning but i don't know how he what i did or what he did or just it was just the, you know it was just the time he took off intellectually and and with reading and stuff by eighth grade so it's only two years later at, at this at, at seventh grade i gave them an assignment i said i want you to read three books this summer and when you come back, I'm going to give you a really kind of a cool assignment. You can do whatever you want. So when they came back, I gave them three choices. They could do a diorama or they could do, I can't remember what the second one was. And the third one was, or they can make a movie, which was, this is the videotape days, right? So this kid did a movie of a short story by J.D. Salinger. Or Esme with Love and Squalor, which is a beautiful story. And it was hilarious. And it was it was beautifully done. And so and then and then he just flowered in that eighth grade. And that actually later in eighth grade, he played Prospero in the Tempest when I when I directed the kids in the Tempest. But here's the thing: couldn't but read in the beginning of sixth grade. He went to high school in a public high school in the Detroit area. Um he got a summer job working at Greenfield Village, which is a kind of world it. attraction. And he was at lunch, and I guess he was 17 or 16. And he's kind of he's talking to this woman who's probably in her 40s or 50s about art and literature and stuff. And she stopped him. She goes, Where did you go to school? She said, I went to the Detroit Waldorf School. I want you to go home and thank your mother. <laughs> And he ended up as the valedictorian of his class in high school, a kid who couldn't read at the beginning of sixth grade. So it just goes to show, I mean, goes to show you that this business of tracking is poison and the, and the mainstream, as Tara was saying, you know, where they have all these benchmark students will be able to do this at this point. Um, in my experience, that's every kid is different. Mm -hmm. Right. And my own children, I had a couple of my kids who were not interested in reading until sixth grade. And what happens if you push the reading thing early grades, right? 
they burn out by seventh or eighth grade and they don't want to read at all. Speaking of um, seventh and eighth grade, here's a question for, for both of you. And I know, um, Souter, you've been working in schools as a teacher recently. So this might particularly kind of hit home. But I, I love thinking about the content of curriculums and I love thinking about what we can do. And, um, you know, Martin's stories are very inspiring. Another question that I'm, that I'm wrestling with is that despite the, the best laid plans of mice and men, we have a peer culture, a society maybe more dominated by age segregation, lack of intergenerational growth rituals, and immersion in social media peer culture than has ever maybe existed on the planet. Yeah. And so how, if we want to raise children who are engaging with the best content we can give them and self-educating, how do we face the fact that at the first confrontation, they might have incredible moral choices to make of being alienated from their peers or alienated from reality? Let me, think. You know, let me share a little bit like what I saw, you know, so from, I was between jobs from say February through towards the end of the school year. And I thought, wow, I kind of want to see the school. So I chose a small kind of small district where my hope was I could see everything from K through 12, uh, kind of near me. And it was great. You know, there's some wonderful people there. There was a couple of things that were really interesting. And I think I can get to some of this. Um, what was new to me, and you know, there's the special ed departments are huge now, right? They just they need them. The same guy from uh, the same guy from Harvard, this economist. I really believe he conjectured like, if you gave every student a tutor you know, for six months, it wouldn't even begin to catch the damage. Just a side story of like the school closures. But there's a new phenomenon in schools, and I did run this by. I'd be in a classroom, and there'd be like two special ed teachers and a teacher's aide. You know, it's like a team. And uh, so used to, when we were in schools, if we went to school, I went to Catholic schools and a public high school, you always had, I don't know if it was thirds, but you had a group of students who were kind of high performers, uh, fair to Midland, uh, those were me and my pals, and then some students who struggled. But coming out of um, COVID, and this was a school that never fully closed. There was a couple around us, um, but still enough people stayed home and there was Zoom and everything for, for pop segments of the population. But I have a daughter who teaches in a nearby school district, another daughter who teaches in Astoria, Queens. And they said, no, this is true. And it was a change is that in addition to those three levels, you have um, really nice kids, but there's a huge cadre in every single grade and in every single class who are not going to do anything. So you go through, you, as a substitute, you go in there and you say, oh gosh, uh, the notes say that Hoosel Fritz and McGillicuddy are you know, missing chapters, three chapters. Uh, these people are missing none and these people are missing one. And then you have two or three kids who are missing like the whole book. And you, you're told by the special ed people to invite them, you know, are you interested in doing something today? And they're always gonna say no. And so talking to some special ed teachers that you know, there's this kind of black hole in every school district or school room now, you know, that 
what does that do to the others when there's just a complete non-compliance? Do we call this part of the great refusal or the great resignation? I have no idea. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, so I'm thinking of one in sixth grade and I would say, and I won't give the student's name, like, you know, where, where do you think, because I, I also can't say, wow, schooling is salvation, right? I really <laughs> wish you'd apply yourself. Right. The other people in the school district, many of them, they have that belief. You know, I don't have the faith, I guess. But I would still say like, what, what do you think this is doing for you? And um, do you think you're going to change next year? Nope, 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 nope. Um, to be honest, and maybe I'm getting too far afield, my youngest son, who's still in college, one of my four, he goes the same things there in college. You can do nothing and pass. And he says it's ubiquitous across college campuses. And it's creating, Mike, your point about fear, your point about fear, it's creating massive anxiety, you know, so people are drinking a heck of a lot more thoughts Mm -hmm. of suicide, ubiquitous, but also there's this great kind of like egregore we're building of just like, maybe when the other shoe's going to drop to your point, um, Tara, let me, let me share one anecdote and we'll see if Michael or we can get something to get at your point. Cause I know you're, you're probably more likely than us to actually be doing something, at least the two of us here, you know, cause you have young children, peer groups, um, you know, one anecdote I had was, you know, that again, there's discipline problems that just can't be handled. Now you've always had, you know, the sixth grade is horrible. The eighth grade are kind of tryhards and do-gooders, but um, you always at every school, you know, I see you got to be mixing up, you know, when Illich said, you just have people of the same, he's, he helped us capture the arbitrary nature of it, that you have kids of the same age in one classroom. And you start to see that that's just the greatest, craziest, um, when I mean greatest, I mean the, the greatest amount of insanity to a way of running a school district. So yeah, in, in school districts, including this one, you had um, where seniors might meet for lunch, you know, twice a semester with some young struggling person. But um, the discipline problems were so bad that my last day there, I was, uh, and they can be so, so, so bad, like just F you, F you, right? I know. <laughs> And then, uh, but one kid I met my first day, he was a senior and I was walking out. It was my last day and I knew there weren't going to, it was the end of the school year and there weren't going to be full subbing days anymore. We had two weeks left and the teachers really have to be there. So I was called in for maybe a half a day, but they only needed me for a quarter of a day. And uh, my last class of my last day there, I was in a class that like many was about to erupt. And I came out in this nice senior, he said, and there was another sub who was going to have to handle that class. I think I was just going to be a teacher's aide that day. Remember, there's always a team. And I walked out and this guy was walking down the hallways when he goes, I don't know how people can handle them. He was a senior. And I just thought like these boys could handle them. The senior boys could be with them. They really could. And they could just handle them. My youngest son, he works at like a fun center up here. And he works, you know, the go-karts and the, uh, the laser tag thing at an outdoor fun center. And he's learned how to handle that demographic. But I thought um, that would be really good for those seniors. And um, it's, they would know that they were needed, needed. Yeah. These senior boys who could just like lay down the law for these ones. I just saw a poetry that viscerally filled me with much a better sense of beauty than some of these artificial pairings, which are still good between a person in senior high checking in on a second grader. Tell me what you think of that. You know, they were so different from me. They, they look similar on the outside that we can pair up before the school year starts senior with a freshman and help them get acclimated to this notion that you call in 
and this is one case because it could be females too. You could call in some senior boys who are, you know, they had senioritis and everything. And I thought the blessings this team of young men could bring to this really good school district, but with some of the middle-aged school kids who are just completely and totally out of control. I think that would be wonderful. And it's partly why I'm a big advocate for K through eights mm-hmm. instead of a middle school thing, having the eighth graders lead the kindergartners. But I would love to see what you're talking about with, you know, seniors and freshmen, you know, just having these older kids come in with them. The problem is that the administration is risk averse. Completely. They are afraid of someone saying something uncouth. They are afraid of someone getting, you know, physical, even if they're going to get physical all the time anyway. They are just by the book. (laughs) And that's where, you know, maybe there's been some good things from that, but that stranglehold of the administrative mindset on creativity is what's (laughs) killing education. And we know that it's happening in a million ways, but what you're saying would be, Wonderful. Just like for a teacher to be able to say, I'm not going to treat you all as equal, but I know you, you, and you would be really good at this. Yeah. And for me, and that's the thing. Yeah. Haven't shown promise, but you would rise to the occasion. And so I'm going to give you the opportunity to see what happens. But the yeah, teachers these ones who could handle the sixth grade or the bad eighth grade class, they weren't always the best students, right? But it was such an important function they served because they were authentic and they could speak the same language. And it wasn't their, their way of being cool with these, the way I pictured it, and I know I was seeing it clearly, it would have drawn out the best in both. Very different than the summer, you have a two-day training all my kids did when they were in senior class, the honor of taking this program, where then they could welcome a freshman again, getting off the bus as a newbie and show them around you know, the actual directions to their locker. This was a wild pairing that could build relationship and threatened, but it threatened this whole kind of class Thing, relationships, relationships threaten administration that's yeah. just how it right. is right and that's and, and that you know so my my answer to that i mean I, that mentoring kind of thing is useful for sure um but now i'm not even advocating classrooms of the same grade but one of the good things in the waldorf education setting is because as small as beautiful and with the t- same teacher with the same kids for eight, eight years, even if they have other kids come in, totally mitigates that, that clickishness that you see in public schools, which are huge because they're huge and, we, and you, need, you need allies, you need friends, right? So the people, kids are drawn to, to the kids they think will not hate them as much as the other kids, right? That they're and and so when I when I was a Waldorf teacher, say I had a girl one time I had a girl come in in sixth grade from public school, and she was coming in trying. You know, I used to call them queen bees. She came in trying to set it all up, right? She's trying to arrange things, you know, because she was used to this adversarial relationship between the students and the teacher, mm-hmm. and she was trying to set that up with the other kids, and they're like that's Mr. Martin. <laughs> what are you talking about? He's one of us. He's yeah. out. Um, so and, and as Tara was just saying, relationship is the thing, is the key. And that's what I always tell people um, when I was a older teacher. It's, it's really about building relationships between the teacher and the students, the students and each other, and all of us in the curriculum, right? 
you know, and the world, which is the, the, the curriculum is the world. So that, and, and you'll still have, I wouldn't say clickishness, but you'll still have, you know, problems now and again, but it's much more human. Hmm. And having homeschooled my own kids, you know, in a kind of a one room schoolhouse, <coughs> um, there, you know, people will say, what about socialization, right? You know, like ever hear that when you're going to homeschool? Well, I got an anecdote on that in a second. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And, and I go, I always say social socialization to what, <laughs> to what, right? There's uh, They're totally socialized. And plus, you know, um, you know, I, I, I have read the little house in the prairie books a gazillion times to my children over the course of the years. <clears throat> what did they do about socialization? Right right? Or anybody. I mean, it's, it's, that's a myth, socialization. Um, but it's a tool. Socialization is a tool of, of, the, of the archons. Yeah, I was going to say, talk about appropriating like the language of your masters, you know, because that is, we're not just making it up. You know, we homeschooled our kids for a while, but like whether it was uh, grandparents, uncles, or everybody, they're worried about socialization. But it's not a rebuttal like you would use it in an argument. But there's a very interesting, I forget if he's a sociologist or anthropologist, but his name is Lloyd DeMoss. You ever heard of him? Okay, but he, you know, I always wondered if you had to compare cultures, which one is better than the other, right? You could have cultural relativism and everyone has to be judged on his own terms. But he looked at terms of empathic child rearing. He thought that was, that would be progress from bundling kids, you know, and just like exposing them. But when you looked at empathic child rearing, hey, he said, Jewish culture was an early empathic, like neat, right? And he, just all these insights that came from that. But one of them, of course, was that socialization was a stage that should have been like 100 years ago. You know, that's a, that's a stage in this hierarchy where you had like six to the half a dozen. You know, we're treating every kid's like, uh, you know, just not individuals, but as just, you know, units in a group. And, you know, that when not homeschoolers. I'm not trying to give them a good headspace to be in when people say this, but sure, we can hear it as Michael was saying that socialization is like saying to be socialized into, uh, oh, like like a gang, to be socialized into the, the kids who pick on other kids and things like that. But the I forget what the higher level is called, but obviously it's the notion that everybody's unique and distinct individuals well to be socialized into thinking you should change your gender at the age of 14 <laughs> right well that you know that brings up something that i would love to talk about in terms of these vulnerable groups how do we build rituals for them you know we're, we've stripped rituals away um there's a few left in the catholic church for coming of age but how this adolescent group is getting their rituals from social media and peer culture. Now I've been reading a lot of, of Steiner and um, you know, this year for St. John's day, I had my whole family come out and we jumped over the bonfire. And um, when Martin recommended uh, the, the pouring of the apples, the, of the apple juice on 12th night, we did yeah. that. But those, <laughs> those are, are good family rituals, but how, do we incorporate rituals for our older kids? One, one, be very short, you know, that I, I used to work as a youth minister. Boy, I didn't ask for that job, but I had to do it. Uh, 
really tough, really tough. But there was one book and it was just a simple piece of advice that at least gets at some of this. But I used it for my own kids. You know, that what people have to do is to delay certain coming of age passages. The point would be if you got if you're a mother and you got your daughter's ears pierced at age five, what is she going to do to break the rules when she's 13? Right. And that we're all we're doing those things that used to be those transgressive, you know, setting up something mildly transgressive for an adolescent to do to like say they're an individual but we're we're giving them as gifts uh at five years old six years old seven years old so i think that's a um a little piece of it but i have to think well, more well part of it, it the part of the problem is we live in a culture that treats uh children like adults and adults like children right yeah. you go in i'll never forget when graphic novels first became a thing, this back in the early 90s, I went to this uh, video store. There's like an art, it had a lot of art films. I would go there and then they, they open up this graphic comic section. And I was I go, <laughs> like, I go home, like, there's like the, all these guys my age reading comic books. What's with this? You know? Um, so it infantilizes, our, our culture infantilizes grownups and uh and treats kids like they're like they're already adults they like to make adult decisions and steiner is one of the things steiner said never do that because what does it do it makes the child anxious yeah you're 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 bringing it all back to fear and anxiety michael is so crucial yeah and so and, crucial. and and so when we're talking about socialization for instance i mean um well, there's socialization and there's rites of passage. Um, so there's a really great book on education. It's called The Educated Mind by Kieran Egan, who's mm -hmm. an Irish educator who lives in Canada. And uh, he has, he, he, he's very, um, he looks at the, the way we educate is three systems that are in conflict with each other. So you have um, socialization, which, you know, that's what's the goal there. It's to get us you know, say the Pledge of Allegiance, go to the bathroom. Everybody goes to the bathroom at the same time. We're all in group uh, regimented groups, right? We know we learn American history or whatever the history is. And we learn, you know, and, and lately, I think uh, critical race theory is a socialization technique. It's, sure it's it not anything else and then that's in conflict with um self-expression like a rousseauing and kind of approach the things uh -huh. finding you know exploring my the self what do i like right well how can you do socialization you know how can you have a socialization model where you're also trying to teach a child to express himself so true. those 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 they're they're in conflict with each other and the other one is the kind of platonic model where you learn all this you know high knowledge with the uh, the the goal of being uh kind of liberated in your thinking well that's you can't be an individual a clear individual thinker and also be socialized to the system right and Could we agree that like those those second two options are both floatsam and jetsam on the socialization though like in in institutional schooling is that right would you agree like they're they're window dressed institutional it's, schooling it's is language. almost almost entirely socialization uh, socialization yeah 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 
and I think grooming is socialization. Yeah. Um, but you, and and so homes are unschooling is really Rousseauian, right? Yes. Yeah. It means so. What do you want to do today? What do you want to learn about today, Jimmy? And great books theoretically could be this kind of elite thing. That is but great. The great when, books when is the platonic thing. The right? medium being the message, you know. So if you have if you have an overt lesson of some socialization in the medium of schooling, and Michael was making the point of you have socialization, Tara. Tara had she was, had to step away for a little bit. You have socialization claims in a school, but also finding yourself and also like elite knowledge. I guess my and they can't work. So that's a condemnation. But also, I think the system is so bright that they're the, the top two are just lures and frosting in yeah. a massive, massive socialization campaign. You know, this yeah. was uh, this was uh, John Taylor Gatto's main point. Oh, yeah, he was awesome. Yeah. yeah. And he knew because he had been a teacher in the system, <laughs> right? He knew how jacked up it is. Um, now, interesting, now in, in uh, Egan's book, he says, instead of doing those three things, why don't we try to do, you know, where the child is at the time? So he has these different types of uh, understanding. So he, like for an infant, for instance, what he calls somatic understanding. So they learn things kind of by touch, and warmth and feel. And, and then when they get a little older, he calls it mythic understanding. So children like first, second, third, fourth grade, you know, they're interested in myth, but also the use of fairy tales, a great book by Bruno Bietelheim, the uses of enchantment, right? Steiner, Steiner schools are big on fairy tales and saint stories in those early grades. And then Egan goes from there to a romantic understanding, which, you know, where kids are interested. Remember when, we were, when I was a kid, probably you too, Mike. I remember in the library, everybody was gathered around the Guinness Book of World Records. And right? uh, and like books about Bigfoot. And yeah, yeah, because they. this is what he says is <laughs> that- always taking out dinosaurs and books on Bigfoot. Right, because students are interested in, in what's possible. Yeah. You know, can you actually have three legs and walk around and have a career? Can Siamese, Siamese twins get married? You know? Yeah. Did you guys do the same thing with comic books? Because I remember all comic the books are the same kind of thing, right? Being with comic book cards, but that seems to have really replaced fairy tales for my my kids' peers. <laughs> like yeah. when comic, they comic book cards. We did with comic book cards, but obviously the movies and the culture, like when okay. yeah. kids' yeah. friends come over, that sort of yeah, and that's unfortunate really too. And I think that's weird that they've lost sort of what I see as the archetypal fairy tales and are getting these sort of superhero yeah which is why steiner said turn off the don't have a tv right <laughs> right and and then his so after romance so romantic understanding a great book to that it really illustrates that is anne of green gables yes lucy maud montgomery what she was a school teacher and she really knows what i mean she really captures what kids in seventh and eighth grade are like Right. They have that room. And I love that scene in Anna Green Gables when uh, Anne and Diana are performing the, the Lily Maid from Tennyson and, and she gets the, the boat launches down the river and she, she goes down the river pretending she's the, the she's uh, the lady of Shalott, <laughs> which is great. But her love for language. Right. My one daughter is was basically or the reincarnation of Anne when she was little. I mean, she was really interested in big words and she would spit them out all the time. And she'd, she'd say, uh, you know, and one, one great thing, Anne would say, 
I'll stay here because there's more scope for imagination. <laughs> you know, and then after that, so that goes probably till 10th grade. And then they, then kids, he, Egan would say, move into what he would call philosophic understanding. So they're trying to find a system, a way to understand the world. So you have, you know, a 16 year old girl, I'm a feminist. And, and they see everything through that lens. You know, you say like pizza, that's a, that's Age a that's patriarchy. Yeah. 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 You know what I mean? Or whatever. Or a kid thinks he's a socialist when he's 17. But what happens is a teacher or a parent, you know, you, you don't discourage them. But what happens is that you start to say, well, what about this? <laughs> Tara, what do you think? So you're right. you're at home. Yeah. And then, so, you know, I have, a, I have a sense here, you know, that again, my kids had spent some time in public school, you know, they, we homeschooled, then they went to a small Catholic school, which I'll be honest, I liked more because it was small than because it was Catholic. Uh, the Catholic thing was fine. And this happened to be a good one. In one sense, they had a healthy arts kind of integration. But Tara, tell for the listeners too, like, where are you now? What are you doing? What, you know, and you even mentioned a uh, four school. You know, I think uh, we'll bring it back. And then, you know, Michael, like if you had to create a school right now, I've given some thought to what I would do if I had to offer something. But it came to you said, five families come to you and say, Tara, help us. You know, I was asked years ago to start a neighborhood co-op when I didn't mm. have any kids. And I said, oh, absolutely not. <laughs> because <laughs> my values and imaginations were very outside of what um what theirs were. I've been reading about homeschooling for many years. Um, I right now have two who are home full time. I my older two are in a school. Mm -hmm. I it's not my preference, but at the moment it's a Lutheran school that was recommended to me by a friend, and I went to visit it. And I was pretty critical after having worked in some Catholic schools, and I loved it it's in the middle of a rural country and you know i go to their um families are involved i presume I go, to, I go to every little thing they have and i'm shocked at how they keep managing to navigate <laughs> everything beautifully there's no screens in the classrooms they were quick to get rid of masks they stayed open during covid there's this wonderful sense of being out in nature. It's just surrounded by, it's farmer kids. It's just kind of rural farmer kids and my kids. I don't want to stay with it forever, but I do love that my kids, I'm not from Western Pennsylvania. So I know very few people in this very- Where are you from? Oh, nowhere. Okay, <laughs> I'm from like the New York suburbs and the DC suburbs. Cool. So it's a high places with high turnover and um, just not, not very rooted. So this is a very rooted place. Anywhere we go, everybody knows everybody's uncle and cousin mm -hmm. and that's hard. Um, so the school has been good in having my kids feel a part of a community which is something I, I never had as a public school student. Um, I would like to get them home soon, but, but at the, in the meantime, it's working well. In the summer, we're doing this forest school where you just you bring them down into the woods and they just go crazy. <laughs> so they come home and they're, they're dirty and they're messy. And that's kind of what I'm going for every day. You know, there's a Waldorf school in Pittsburgh, which is insanely expensive. Actually, the, the boy I talked about who was the valedictorian of his class, mm -hmm. he taught there for a while. 
Oh, did, and and Waldorf, yeah. I, I know one of the teachers. I know some of the people who go there. I think it would be marvelous if I could. Do you think it's it. a good one? When Michael and I talked about Rudolf Steiner, you know, we had, uh, we have to admit, a lot of them are really whacked out, you know, filled with kind of elitist sensibilities, uh, ashamed of Rudolf Steiner in a sense. I've gotten that sense from a lot of other schools. I'm not very close to this school, but the one teacher who I knew very well was nothing like that. He was very, cool. he was one of the big influences in getting me to go back to Steiner and read more. And uh, what was his name? Um, his name is, his name Bob. Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I started a book club okay. for Inklings, and he came. You okay. should spell it backwards for Michael so we hide his true identity. I won't, yeah, I won't give his last name, um, but his yeah. name's Bob, and he he was wonderful. I always <laughs> always wish he would come back to book club, but I don't think we were Steinerian enough for him back yeah. then. Um, but, I mean, they had a book club at the school that would read Steiner every Wednesday. Well, and they spent two hours talking about Steiner. So I think that was helpful. So I, I have high opinions of the school. It's just, it's, it's, yeah. out of it's outrageously expensive. Yeah. yeah. It's insane. I've often thought that, you know, I live in the country. There was, there's a small little Catholic school. Again, my kids went to public school from all of them were there from say fifth grade through 12th. But um, there was a small little Catholic school that was always for a while on the, on the verge of closing and having worked in almost every possible ministry within the Catholic church if it closed, I was always trying to tell people that, okay, that's fine. Now that whole entity walks out the school and we could take the building and just do it from the bottom up. You know, that uh, this would be kind of illich that when enough parents, um, you can, again, kids are constantly learning stuff just by being alive. But when enough kids, uh, their parents thought wanted to tackle something like Spanish, you know, I work at a college, I could get a, a, a good Spanish educator. They're right here. And we could stipend that teacher to go in and do 12 weeks, you know, in 12 weeks again. And so from the bottom up pay, we didn't need a computer lab. A, we don't want many computers, but everybody has one at home. So we don't need to do that. Phys ed, we're not going to hire a gym teacher, you know, but we can, you know, we, I think there is some really good instruction that comes from phys ed. I don't want to diminish that, yeah. but everything kind of from the bottom up. And then when people, um, when parents just choose that they wanted to organize for this. And I, I know some people who drive into Rochester, who um, they just pay like $200 for a course. They they agree that they want this and they all have a community and somebody teaches it. But and this bottom up, there's so much freedom for oh, people. That, it doesn't cost that's anything. happening all over the Pittsburgh area. Okay, it's it's especially happening, happening on the north side. It's happening in some of the small towns. I live in a very bad area for it yeah. in terms of its deindustrialization progress, but it is happening i'm not day. seeing enough of it and maybe it's because i was in a school and my kids are out of school age i'm not you know? seeing enough but i am in like you know like a mom's of preschoolers group where they're yeah. like trying to get there so there yeah. are people working for it but there's every year things happen but it's like waiting for spring to come yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. like you see parents have kids in school that they're hating it you know, and I just I want to say, like, you can just walk out into freedom, right? They go, how do we, what do we do? I go, the first thing you do is you're like, you grab your kids, you just walk out. You know, my friend, Bill Kaufman, who you know, Tara, he uh, he lives in a small town, so he had nothing wrong with the school. But it was just another approach that we, so that we, we have to drop the religious nature of the schools. That's the biggie. The schools exist more in our mind than they do in reality. Again, like with COVID, people, Michael, you said they saw on Zoom what was going on. So that was the first great illusion they saw behind the curtain. But Bill Kaufman's approach was, uh, 
on any given day. And I, I admit we did a lot of this. My daughter, Lucy, took off Wednesdays for like, I don't know, until she was a freshman in college. Um, and uh, she would just do something else. But any holiday, remote holiday, the birthday of Sojourner Truth, you know, that was a day to stay home and travel to something or do, you know, that she was technically enrolled, but you can really, really kind of push this stuff, I guess, until high school and they start kind of like calling on you. But, you know, people just need to, I think it's the first step is just to not take it so seriously. Right. I, I've never checked. I was at a lacrosse game once and I guess all the, the boys in my youngest son's grades, they were worried about a test uh, that they all thought they had failed. And a parent asked me, and I, I, I think he was a junior at that point, to be honest with you. And um, my youngest was a junior. And they said, I said, how do you guys know the grade? And they said, oh, it's on a thing called school tools. And I'm just not lying with God as my witness. Right. I said, I don't even know what school uh -huh. tools is. Like, well, you not know. Like most parents are checking all the time. And I, I could see that your child knows you're checking that all the time and it's downloading fear into them. I should be embarrassed that I don't, I didn't even know it existed, that I could check out my child apart from the report cards that came that had any access. I guess I wasn't interested, you know. But, you, you know, um, one of the things that I guess I think about this a lot and, uh, People don't know um, how incredibly inefficient schooling is. I mean, even in the best situation, <laughs> it's just so damned in inefficient. And my kids, you know, with their, with their, I mean, they do so little, <laughs> and you know, but they're they're done before lunch usually. And usually, Bonnie, with the, the two younger ones, so she'll do math with them after lunch for for an hour. You know, just to because you do you know, practice that kind of stuff, um, but you know, I think a great example is Beatrix Potter, who d just studied at home with a tutor, didn't do much, but she she uh, she was highly educated. Never went to college, but she was publishing scientific papers when she was eighteen uh, because her because uh, she was so. Uh, that that's that that time i mean they really allowed children to observe nature and which is why her illustrations in her books look like actual nature and not like you can compare uh, the illustrations in a beatrix potter book to to some of the lousy illustrations that they people treat kids like they're idiots you know the the, the children's books that have these horrible horrible images with the these loud colors and uh, whether they're computer generated or not, they look, they're just damned ugly, which is why, stu you know, Steiner said, you know, surround the child with beauty, right? And it doesn't have to be expensive to be beautiful. Um, Tara has a PhD in this type of stuff, basically. Well, you know, I mean, it's just amazing. Dalai Lama of illustrations in children's books. It's just, it's just amazing that people think it's, you need to do all, you keep kids busy with all this garbage like like Guido was saying I'm just feel, feel like my head is just filled with crap Alice, <laughs> you know it's and it's it's doesn't it's not doesn't need to be like that um so it, I it, for other people who are who are listening you know you might want to check out the Charlotte Mason's stuff uh, which is really based on an education in nature which is really useful I mean I body uses it to a certain degree not a lot but 
Um, there are all kinds of things. This is why when I was I taught a course for people who were actually in the classroom and I made them read uh, Anne of Green Gables because if you want to be a good teacher, they got to know what kids are like, you know. Um, think, go ahead. I think there's sort of two things against us in terms of getting kids to be immersed in beauty. And one of them is the cult of newness. Teachers are pushed by corporations and they're pushed by other parents <laughs> to do something that's new. And family, yeah. I mean, like you know, when, when my kids, if my kids are watching TV, there's a, an ad for the new movie. This is new, you have to watch it. And there's this weird cultural bias in not sharing things with your own kids. Like as if people are ashamed of saying the old Mr. Rogers episodes are better than Daniel Tiger because it's not new and it's okay. I understand that the whole for-profit media is going to be pushing that, but for parents to buy into that and want to compete with their child and say, let's watch Minions rather than yeah. Pollyanna is so, it's breaking that bond of what the kid and the parents have both grown up with. Yeah, but but the thing is, I mean, for me, I mean, it can, it can be daunting and overwhelming to like, well, how are you gonna change everything? Well slow and steady wins the race right so start small is beautiful small is where you start and whether it's and whether it's with your own kids or whether what you're building up uh you know you could you in fact i know a friend of mine got very disappointed in their waldorf school actually the place where i used to teach because they were wearing masks and they were doing all this crazy stuff and she was totally not into it. And so what they did, a lot of the parents yanked their kids out of the school because they did not want, in fact, I think they're thinking about wearing masks again this year. Um, it's insane. Not in a lot of places, yeah. Um, and so what uh, What these they did actually, they, they hired actually, if, if, I was gonna say this kid, he's not, he's probably 35. But he when he was a kid, I taught him. He he wasn't in my class, but I, I taught him in some classes. Um, and he 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 took on they they had like seven kids who were, were about second or third grade, and and they hired him to be their teacher. And they do basically do they're doing a hedge school, and they meet two or three days a week, you know. And he he goes through basically the Waldorf curriculum with the kids, you know, and like a main lesson, and then. They have other things. Um, my my own kids. Um, I have three in school still. My daughter will be a senior, an eighth grade boy and a sixth grade boy, and I th we think you know. Now they got the curriculum down. I mean, they 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 also play basketball in the league, and uh, but we're thinking about you know as a going back to what Tara said earlier about uh, initiation rituals for our 13 year old to learn blacksmithing because there are some blacksmiths who, who actually give lessons in, in, in the, the vicinity over here because I think you know for a boy anyway it's there I it might be different for girls but for a boy I think very often at that at that age, that age of initiation, this is in African cultures, for instance, this is when you have to go kill a lion or something, right? So you have, or they're circumcised. That'll, that'll make you 
realize you've been initiated into a new stage of life. But, um, and, and I had this happen when I was a school teacher, I had a boy, really talented boy, but really super whiny and clingy. And I'd, I'd give a, an algebra problem and he just, I can't do it. I'm like, you're driving me nuts. Okay. And so <laughs> we're talking, we had, in fact, one of my best friends now, uh, sh she was basically the special ed teacher of the school. And so I met with her and some other teachers and I said, what, what does this boy need? And I said, he needs something so archetypally male that he could hurt himself, you know, whether like hunting or trapping or some blacksmithing. And it just so happened that one of the other teachers, her son was a blacksmith. And so they got some funding and the kid, the blacksmith would come every Friday afternoon and this boy would take off of one period or two periods and go learn blacksmithing. And then he burned himself. And because I wanted him to have to do something if he wasn't paying attention, he would burn himself. And then uh, he went, he was applying to college and he had to write a letter and he told me about this. He said, they ask you, what is something that transformed you? You know, you felt transformative because that he wrote about that because, because I really felt that after that I was a different person. And here's the, here's the great thing. I ended up teaching him in college too which was for uh, both of us, it was, it was, I mean, I was really love this kid. And uh, he, I was teaching philosophy at Mary Grove College and he walks in and he said, he said, he looked at me and said, we're back together. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, and he was so much more capable than everybody else there. I mean, not just because I had been his teacher, but just of, because who he was and his willingness to engage the world, you know, right. which was great. I mean, it's, it's inspiring. Tell us some more things, Tara. You're writing notes. I see that. Oh no, I was um, I was so inspired by his blacksmithing story. I had a friend who got very into blacksmithing in high school, and he made a name for himself by wearing like an iron dress to prom. <laughs> That's his career now. Yeah. And when I think about my son and things I want him to do in the world that are good and not evil, yeah. I hadn't thought about blacksmithing in a very long time. <laughs> I was okay. That's something to put on the table again. Those those things where we make things with our hands and engage with the world and have to have to learn to bend reality or, or bend with reality. Yeah, and, or, and Michael's mentioned fear and anxiety so many times and each time I've tried to highlight it, but like, if we, you know, if we can't get the money for those things in school, for this idea of uh, helping people moving through adolescence or anything, we can put them there as the antidote to, you know, anxiety, the epidemic, because everybody yeah. understands that to say, instead of like all this counseling, which is again, prudent and useful, but just put it in front of people that without this, your kid's going to be a nervous, anxious wreck. Right. And that's part that's, of that's adult, I, you know, making them adults before we you know, what do you want to wear today, Jeffy? You know, what do you want to eat? What do you, how many decisions do you make before breakfast? Right. Mm -hmm. um, but then, and that creates anxiety. Yeah. And you, they get corrected one time by an adult and they, they have a meltdown. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but the other thing with what talk about blacksmithing or whatever it is in woodworking, I think was a great example of this in a Waldorf curriculum, gardening, or, you know, part of engaging with the world is that it pushes back, right? Mm -hmm. 
it pushes back at you. And, and I, I, my sense from, from the, the college students I, I get is that a lot of them don't get, they go, okay, then whatever, what, what would you like? You know, they don't get the world to push back. And it's not just pushing back um, materially, but intellectually, they don't get, no one gets pushed back. No, no, one, no one, you know, and that's part of, we know this, that's part of what strengthens a person's ego, a, a, a strengthens a person's self is when you get, and I don't mean criticism or anything like that. I mean, you know, just bringing it up anomaly. Say you have a 16 year old feminist, right? I said, well, you know, and I had this happen with a, with a 19 year old feminist last semester when she told me she was doing a paper on feminism and I asked her in the question, you know, she had to do a presentation and I said, the question and answer, I said, so, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about, you know, trans, trans women, do, how do they fit into the feminist framework? Did, you know, are they really women? She said, yeah, they really are. I said, well, what if they want to detransition? You know, which is just bringing it up, you know, okay. I mean, and it's not being mean, it's an actual, what, what do you do with that? Right, and then what happens is, and the, the reason you do that as a teacher is not to attack the student. And if you and if you do it as your as an attack, it's going to backfire. But you just raise that and let you know let them think about it. They don't have to. It's not like an arm wrestling match where they have to say uncle. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you know that's one of the getting students to dig, to really dig into the mysteries. You said the world pushes back, and I think also having creating a mystery. If we're trying to build rituals, you also want to create a mystery. That's part of the, the ancient mystery schools is the Zen cone, the having to engage with something and your teacher just doesn't tell you the answer. Yep. And we have all the kids who are living in a social media environment, which has dissolved time and is dissolving space. Mm -hmm. And one way our family's trying to, to deal with that is for us to be making our own calendar. I'm making my own calendar with, um, you know, our major solstices and equinoxes, then also going into the quarter days, Lamas and May Day, and it makes me dig. <laughs> I have to have my kids dig. I say, what does it mean to have all hollows tied. You've learned about Halloween. You've seen, you've gone to Target, you see the Halloween decorations. Let's dig and figure out what all hollows tied is. And for these kids who have these pat answers about what their gender is, to have to maybe go dig into the experience of, okay, I'm not gonna tell you that's not true, but why don't you dig into what childbirth was in the year 1100 mm -hmm. and come back and sort of tell me what that female experience is, they might have a very different view than just the talking points they've learned on Tumblr. Yeah. Great, great, great. We're winding down a little bit. There's a, I'll share that tomorrow I have lunch with, um, you know how when, if we went to college, you had to pay the student association fees, um, you know, for the clubs and things. The vice president of student life where I work, he was saying that the students have been so frugal with those those monies that the 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 account has millions of dollars wow. in it, right? And they're trying to say they got it. It's a state school. They better start using it, or they'll um, or they might they could possibly lose some of it to the state. But at lunch, you know, there's two things. I'm I'm trying to say I work in a building that's technically off campus, so they could have events here 
where instead of using school food, they could have you know, catered. So there's some draw to it. But also, you know, I've said a prayer uh, for a couple of days in a row that this student, I want to say, couldn't you, you know, we've said a lot about these activities. It could be canning. It could be blacksmithing. They have so much money they could be bringing in and using this building or who knows, I don't care which building they use to set up their own parallel pole, you know, in school. You know, I wish me luck. But, you know, there's on the other side, I have to battle with like a board that wants to say, we want to tell them what to take. You know, and my own four kids are saying they need to steer their own ship. You know, they need to say these things they want. We can't say we're having, it's prudent but it's not the final good to say we're hosting, you know, two old ladies from church are going to be teaching knitting on a Tuesday night. You know, we need the young people to like say what they want. Then the adults can help them get that, you know, but uh, I think it's out there, but tomorrow will be like lesson number, you know, 500 is if I need it on how we can, you know, and I have four young kids, Mike, you have kids, Terry, you have kids, but sometimes making these connections, I want to say you have millions of dollars at your disposal. You know, there's an anxiety epidemic. You could, and you have, despite the world telling you you're so busy in college, you don't even have to go to class anymore and you can pass. Like you could be doing something really neat here. So say a prayer for me too. Yeah. Right? I'll yeah. Do. yeah. So again, Tara, you're, uh, we'll put you on the spot. You're willing to keep on joining us on a somewhat regular basis. I hope you're a gem. Oh, thank you so much. No, it's so pleasant to listen to both of you talk. I, I feel a little embarrassed because I, my oldest child is six. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> really? You know, I'm, I'm learning from you as I go and it gives me an excuse to listen to the podcast. <laughs> so I wish I could be in one of your children. <laughs> you got so many ideas. Um, so, well, thank you. Thank you again, Tara. Can I, I, I want to uh, end with an anecdote. Yeah. Do it, do it. Now I heard this story. This is, it was really useful for me. I was at a conference and this guy, he, he was a psychologist. He taught at Princeton. He was a big, famous guy. I can't remember his name, Robert something, Robert Young, maybe. Um, and he said a couple of things. He said, you know, he talked to, talk to us as teachers. They said, you know, this teaching is the, one of the only jobs still important enough to be called a vocation, right? Cool. Which is true. He said, and, and I bet, I'm sure a lot of you just, just missed walking into the seminary or, or the convent uh, on your way to teaching because it's really the only play, one of the only jobs still important enough to be called a vocation. But yeah. the other thing he said, he said, you know, you got to give yourself some space because, you know, we're such so uptight about things and in uh, raising our children and raising our students. And he told the story that he, when he was in graduate school, the graduate grad students were meeting at the professor's house and it was summer. And he said, you know, somebody, his wife let them in. They're waiting in the, in the lobby or whatever room it was. And he hears all this footsteps upstairs. And then he hears voices. Then he hears this eminent uh, Princeton psychologist yell out, because I'm your goddamn father, that's why. <laughs> and then he comes down the stairs and the students are all waiting for him to be embarrassed. And he wasn't embarrassed. <laughs> you know, he says, no, what, what? They can handle it. Let's, let's get, let's start talking about child psychology. That's <laughs> you know? great. And yeah. this is, and I think, you know, if he were to tell that story at a conference now, you'd have to have, you know, oxygen tents outside of the conference room because people would be traumatized, but it's the truth. I mean, I, I have nine kids, you know, 
And teaching boys, I'm sorry, is different from teaching girls. Mm -hmm. It's so different. Yeah. You know, my, my students used to tease me. The boys would come up with me. These two boys, they'd come up every couple of months and say, okay, Mr. Martin, we have to know. I said, what? Who's better? Batman or Superman? You know? <laughs> and, 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 well, you know, Batman doesn't have all superpowers. He's got to figure things out. I'm going to go with Batman. I told you, man. I told you. <laughs> but, uh, but the, the, these same boys, you know, they would, I would, I said, well, you idiots just cut it out. And they'd be goofing around. And, they would come to be at recess because how come you're always calling us idiots? Because <laughs> I don't know. Because what, what, what do you, what do you mean? Because well, when you say to the girls, they say, Oh, thanks, honey. Thank you, sweetie. I said, I said, well, they are sweet and honey, like honey, and you guys are idiots. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they, that was cool with it. I mean, that's the thing is it's different teaching boys than teaching girls. I told you a priest you know? I just had dinner with tonight, brightest guy I've ever met. The brightest person he ever met when he was sent over to study at the highest levels in the Catholic Church at Rome said, no civilization has survived three generations of co-education. That phrase, it has a cadence to it. And uh, that I, I, I've always kept it because it sounds funny, right? No civilization has survived three generations of co-education. But again, you know, when we water it down, the, the, the kind of the, the yin-yang, the polarity that generates creativity is gone. And as Michael's saying, that's just kind of different there. And oh. none of us, none of us are trying to say we have to force women to a box. But what are we giving up when we lose that engine generator is something that's, we'll have to talk about. Yeah. That's a whole other podcast. It I, I really is. 50 things sprouting up. Hey, hey, Tara, give us a name for it. So we'll, we'll do it the next time you're on. Would we just talk about gender? Do you want to? I would just call it three generations. And let's talk about what happens when you have generational unisex ideology. Three generations. Of unisex ideology. I mean, I went, I went to a all women's college for a semester, and it was a life changing experience. Huh. Okay. Okay. Three generations. Three generations of unisex education. Uh, <laughs> next time we get to have Tara Thiek on the Regeneration Podcast. We want to yeah. thank everybody for listening. Find us on YouTube or at Podbean, Spotify, and other wonderful places like that. Have a good week. You too. Yep. Take care, everybody. Bye.